Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erica, and this week we have the one and only Sandy Hudson. Sandy. Hello. hello. Hey. And you know what? You will get an intro because um, I will do an intro, but sometimes I'm like, do I really need to introduce who you are? Maybe. But co-founder, I would say, of Black Lives Matter Toronto would be your first title that would come to mind. Um, now number eight on uh, McLean's power list. <laughs> Up 10, Sandy. No, Top just, 10. It's very, uh, you know, I'm in just one step ahead of Dr. Teresa Tam. <laughs> it, these lists are really, really funny because I'm just like, there is no way that I am more powerful than her, but I appreciate the sentiment. <laughs> Thank you for finding value in my work. <laughs> I love, well, I, I appreciate mean, that. To be fair, I will say this before I before I launch into the whole setup of a little bit of your background and so on. Um, you know, being true to yourself and true to your to your like advocacy and your activism is is a really important lesson because you know eventually the time comes to you you don't go chasing it if you know what i mean and so here you are probably one of the foremost probably around with robin menard and 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 all these conversations that we're having um expert on um blacktivism (laughs) i would say wow that's a new title for show. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're gonna have a lot of fun today. Okay, um, so let me launch into how you're an activist, public intellectual, and creative, and number eight on McLean's power list. I'm sorry, I love saying that. <laughs> With a talent for inspiring others to imagine just futures unapologetically committed to refreshingly honest public discourse. She is also a compelling educator. Sandy is the founder of Black Lives Matter Toronto, vice chair of the Black Legal Action Action Center, Black. Former (laughs) vice chair, former vice chair. I don't know where you're reading from, but. (laughs) Your former vice (laughs) chair. Okay. That bio needs to be updated. Yes, I was former vice chair. Are you still on uh, the board? I'm no longer on the board, but love black men the same. Nonetheless, oh, okay. nonetheless. But it's still your baby, right? Still my baby. Still okay. loving it. Yes, of course. Which is a not-for-profit organization that provides legal aid services in Ontario to low and no-income black people who have been affected by systemic anti-black racism. You are now a first-year law student at UCLA. Congratulations. second-year law student. I'm oh, telling you, my goodness. It is, it is outdated. Oh, a whole year has gone by. You know what? It was flare. I've almost finished my second year. What? Yeah, I'm almost done my second year. Oh, my God. What time is it? I don't know, Okay, girl. it was the flare. Fact, the, the, you listen, flare. listen. The pandemic has us all fucked up. Okay, can I swear on your podcast? Is that cool? Of course you can. Yes, yes, yes. The yes. pandemic has us all fucked up. I yeah. so don't even trip. Okay. 
because I was like, I had it all together. And then I was like, oh, that just went to hell. Anyway, second year <laughs> law. Okay. Is there now in after you're done your second year, does it do you specialize or something? Or is it just or how do you start out that way? Do you have a specialty? I guess is what I'm I saying. do. Oh. I have a specialty. Um, I specialize in critical race studies. Uh, which is a shock to, I'm sure, everyone who's listening right now that that is my specialty. And I also specialize uh, in public interest uh, uh, law. And you have a master's too, don't you? In Yeah. I don't want to say <laughs> you're it. Doing, you're then doing you're... a lot here, Erica. You're doing a lot. <laughs> I know. I'm just like, I don't want to say it because now I'm like, I'll be out of date or something. I... No, yeah, I do. I have a master's in social justice education. <laughs> I think you're just scrapping this whole part just being like hey Sandy welcome tell us about yourself <laughs> no but you're right you're right on that last one you got that last one good okay good because I'm like anyway um all this to say uh you've done a shitload in a short space of time I I think that uh you know yeah sometimes people have this idea that like activism is just like um, something that we all just kind of know how to do or something that isn't a skill, but it is actually a trained skill. And so do I have a talent for it? I think I probably would say that I, I have some talent in the field of activism. Uh, sure. But, uh, but it is also a trained skill. I'm, I'm, I'm a trained organizer, certainly. Okay. So how did you come about going into that training let's say let me let me ask you that question uh, what yeah, I'm trying to question. get to what I'm trying to get to sorry is just like mm-hmm. how did you what was the trajectory and starting off when you started off like when did you start off and how did that trajectory go and the reason I'm asking you this is like everyday people do things and build on it right and they build and they build and they meet more people and they get involved in more stuff. And I don't, I, I kind of want to demystify that. So, so that whoever's listening um, could be like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. I could do that kind of thing. That's my whole purpose for this line of questioning. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll say that uh, like most people, I, came to activism first through doing some form of volunteering, you know, in high school, mm-hmm. volunteering with War Child and like organizations, um, just having a sense that I was frustrated about um, the state of the world and wanting to shift it, wanting to change it. My first uh, protest was uh, the big protests that happened after uh, the U.S. announced uh, war against Afghanistan. Uh and, you know, those those types of participations for me were much like anybody else, any lay person who would go and participate in these actions. I never really thought that this was something that I could do more than attending a rally or something like that. Um, where I began to really actually hone my skills as an organizer was as a student organizer at the University of Toronto. And the story there, that came about because, you know, I entered the University of Toronto um, 
hoping to do an undergraduate degree in computer science because I was like really into software engineering and coding and that's what I wanted to do I wanted to make video games and uh, I didn't know as a first generation student that at the University of Toronto when you start in, in computer science your first year you're charged like a faculty of arts and science tuition fee and in your second year you're charged a special fee for computer science students and the tuition basically doubles and I didn't oh. I didn't know that yeah I didn't know I didn't that. know it was that a differential fee um and I was already getting the top OSAP my parents couldn't support uh me in uh going to school in that way my sister and I we were the double cohort year we both went to uh, university at the same time and I haven't had a little brother at home and things weren't easy for us. So that was uh, hard. And I was working three jobs <laughs> at the time. So, um, you know, I was like, there has to be a way that I can continue in this program. Went to my student union thinking maybe they have like an emergency loan or grant or something that they could help me with. They didn't. <laughs> they were like, no, we don't got any of that, but we do have a rally coming up to reduce tuition fees. Um, you should you should come. You should come to some of our organizing meetings. You can help us plan it. And I was like, highly skeptical, highly skeptical. Like, what would the point of that even be? Reduce tuition? I've never even heard. Like at that point, I hadn't hadn't even thought of the idea of of tuition fees as a political idea. So I started going to some of these meetings and became even more skeptical because I was like, I don't understand how y'all think that less than 10 people in a room are really going to try to change tuition fees for the whole province. Like, I'm I'm very confused about how y'all think that this is going to be effective at all. But I went, I went, I kept going to these meetings and I did a lot of obs- observing and the time came for the rally and I was stunned. I was stunned at how many people were there. Thousands and thousands of students had come to, to Queens Park. And I was like, wait, hang on. I saw how many people were in the room organizing this. I don't understand how all these people came out. I need to know more. I need to understand how they did that. And on top of that, the government shortly afterwards announced a two-year tuition fee freeze. And I was like, but stop, hang on. How did this, I need to understand how this how all this went happen? down. Because this, yeah. this is, I was like, I felt like I was getting a glimpse at an alternative yeah. of how power works in our society and how power could work in our society. And I wanted to know everything. So I'm not a computer scientist. I don't make, <laughs> I don't make computer games. Um, but uh, that whole uh, experience really shifted my undergraduate experience. I spent um, basically the entire time learning um, about organizing. And, you know, I got a degree too. But the, the most important things that I learned during my undergraduate, my, my long seven-year undergraduate experience was how to organize. And what exactly did you start to learn after you started asking those questions? You were talking about how power works um, 
So what are some of the, say, tactics you learned and how does that shift power or build um, a position to shift power? Well, I really, I learned that, you know, almost anything is possible in terms of change, in terms of shifting um, policy what needs to be done is to either take over the reins of power or to influence everyone who has control over whoever has power. And so I learned very quickly that a lot of the the things that we wanted to change, whether that be tuition fees or student debt or racism on campus or sexual violence on campus or whatever it was that was happening. Um, I needed to be able to talk, talk to other people and educate other people about those issues and have them alongside me demonstrate that they were committed to changing the way that the policy uh, currently was and have that influence speak so loudly to power that they couldn't ignore it. And so um, that was going to be different tactics from time to time, from time to time. It might be meeting with an administrator or faculty member. And from time to time, it was, you know, coordinating a sit-in, but the tactics had to meet Um, the goal and uh, the number one thing was talking to other people, having conversations and, and shifting people from, from a place of where I started out of just accepting the fact that tuition fees are just there and there's nothing you can do to change it to believing that it is possible to change our current conditions. I think like your first outing sort of your first grand experience of this of tuition fees you saw that this stuff actually did something so you saw the outcome and you saw the shift in the outcome and so was it like after that um sort of chasing that outcome which was that shift so is that what all of your activism afterwards kind of kind of um that was like the goal basically or were there or do those just shift depending on the issue depending on the time depending on what you what you want out of it or who you want to serve yeah it definitely shifts uh depending on what's going on so um having a win like that is rare you know to have like a an an out and out here's a win you know, mm-hmm. tuition fees are frozen. It's rare. It's a great feeling though. It's definitely a good way to enter activism is on a big win like that. Um, but sometimes the goals change and the goals can be multi-layered, you know, mm-hmm. like um, I, you know, I think about Tent City sometimes, which was the action that Black Lives Matter Toronto did when we slept outside the Toronto police headquarters for two weeks. Was that in 2014? And- it was in 2016. 2016, okay. 2016 in February. Uh, it was very cold. And people often ask, you know, like, 
uh, right after that, the the government had announced um, that they were eliminating carting um, in the province of Ontario, and people were like, "Oh my God! Like, isn't this your biggest victory? Like, you know that this has happened?" Mm-hmm. And it really wasn't. Like the the victory piece for that. Like I think about this all the time. The victory piece for that was the fact that people stayed for two weeks. The fact that people that so many people believed. Um, in what we were doing uh, collectively and what we could do. I can't tell you how beautiful it was. It started out with just like 25 people. And then over the course of the two weeks, we had hundreds of people coming and going. And then beyond that, thousands of people sending donations, you know, dropping off uh, Timbit cards. You know, there was a day that it started to rain um, really heavily. And I had to go to work in the morning because I was still working while that was happening. I went to work in the morning at York University. I came back to Tent City and we had hundreds of umbrellas, hundreds. And I mean, we didn't buy the umbrellas. People were just coming and dropping off these, um, these, these, these supplies for us. And it was just such a beautiful thing. And what the victory in that, for example, is the shift in uh, in everybody who was there and everybody who helped in some way um, to know that we could do something like that. Just the fact that we could do something like that to push power in a direction of change. And that I think is, you know, that experience will stay with all of the people who are there for far longer than, you know, like the policy shift that can change on a whim when a conservative um, comes back into town, the shift that happens in somebody's body, like what they know to be true or what they know to be possible is major. So major. Well, I think what's interesting too is also just the fact that I feel like Black Lives Matter in Toronto now um, can chart the course of a national conversation and a national um, point of view to that conversation. And even globally, if you think, if, you know, I think of, um, speaking of 2016, I was at Pride on t- in 2016. <laughs> 2016 was a big year. <laughs> it was a big year. Okay. I hadn't been at Pride for like, 10 years or something and then my friend's like you know we haven't hung out in a while come come to Toronto come to Pride and I'm like all right and that was the year that we chose to go (laughs) sorry no it was are you kidding (laughs) you um you and your co-founders and your your people like you I will never ever forget that year never like you want to talk about burnishing an experience in one's mind like like somebody has to say 2016 and I'm like you mean pride like that will always be my (laughs) reference okay (laughs) so thank you and um so I I know like when I met you before we talked a little bit about the outfits like (laughs) I was like it was oh, yeah. perfect. 
We came fitted. Yes. Ready. We look good. So why did you, and I'm not asking this for me, but why did you put all that effort into the outfits and the hair? And which I appreciated, by the way, because that made some great headlines the next day, I tell you. Um, and maybe that's why. And what at like what part of those optics, what part does that play in the overall um sort of approach I guess or organizing or planning yeah I mean we we really do uh take a lot of inspiration from uh art and from like the Black Panther movement and so on right and there's a way that there's a visual element to 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 protest and demonstration and so when whenever we do any sort of demo we really plan it out almost like it's a stage you know like Mm -hmm. we do um we do like how do we want this to look how do we want the story to be told about this like what what do we want people to feel what energy do we want to inspire in people that they can take away with them after the demonstration is done and so for pride you know they were they were, I mean, people always forget this part of the story, but they were honoring us, but we felt very dishonored because um, throughout the, you know, they announced that they were honoring us or that they intended to honor us um, after actually the the true story, the true tea, (laughs) the, the real tea is that they called BLM Global to honor them. Uh, they wanted them to be the honored group of pride and BLM Global called us and said hey did Toronto pride call you and we were like no and then so BLM Global said to them said to pride hey you know you have groups fighting in your own city trying to elevate what's going on in Canada right well wait I call them I'm sorry I'm sorry they did what Yeah, they did that. So that's a part of the story that no one ever hears. Like, it's the thing that nobody ever wrote really much about. But yes, they called Pride Toronto had called BLM Global. And that's who they wanted to honor. And BLM Global was like, nah, you got to call. You got to call your local people because they've been doing amazing work. Not the least of which is that they just were sleeping outside for two weeks. Come on. Yeah. So, you know, um, then they called us. Uh, they, you know, we already had the heads up from BLM Global. They didn't know that. So they called us to say, hey, we would like you to honor you as our honored group. And we were like, sure. However, if you do <laughs> want to honor us, there's a couple things we need to talk to you about. Right. One is, you know, the, the, the funding cuts that Black queer organizations have been experiencing from Pride Toronto. Two is the lack of support for for the deaf queer community like you folks need to to start having regular uh, asl interpretation at your events uh three is the the lack of funding for blocko the most popular party every year which is run by black folks and isn't that isn't it free too like that's the it's free yeah yeah. blackness yes you know and yeah uh, and they, you know, they were continuing to cut funding. And so, you know, we had this, these, this list of things. And the South Asian them. and Indigenous stage, too. Yes. Yeah. So talked about yeah. the South Asian and Indigenous stage. Um, and we were like, and also um, the police are the largest contingent at Pride. Also, 
lost in the story often they have like 13 different um groups uh, different police departments that would line up one right behind one an- uh, another and then they would all come in their uniforms with the sirens going as their section in the parade and it's the longest section in the parade it is longer than the corporate section that doesn't make it's like uh what you know it's longer than the community services section it was just and so we were like here are the things if you want to honor us mm-hmm. here's the things that we need you to change and they were like yeah cool we'll take that under advisement and we were like no 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 no. we want meetings to be clear that these things need to change because it's not just us coming up here bringing this out of nowhere you know like this is something that the community has been asking for for a long time and you've been brushing off and so if you're saying that you're going to honor us you can't brush that off they said okay cool yeah let's have these meetings and there was never a firm commitment never this is so canada yeah it was just like let's have an inquiry and and nothing gets done it's like thanks for coming out yeah yeah and so now get your now get your costume and perform negro (laughs) like i feel like that's what it was yeah and you know we we were we knew it was happening like you know with with these cuts to bqi and blackness yes they were using this year where they were honoring black lives matter as a way to say see we're good to black people at the same time that they were being horrendous to black people and allowing the police to use the queer and trans community to pink wash all of the disgusting things they'd been doing in our community. So we said, nope, you know, we met with all of the different groups uh, in, in pride and we're like, this is what we about to do. Are you cool with this? And <laughs> people were like, yes. Um, yeah. Do, do what you need to do. And even some of the staff at pride actually contacted us and we're like, we think that they're being um, disingenuous and that you folks should, should really think about doing something about that or refusing to come. And we're like, Oh yeah, we got something for you. You know, like just, just help, hold up, hold on. So when we devised that action, we wanted people who were watching and the people who we were doing this for, for Black, queer, and trans people to feel powerful. We wanted them to feel magical. We wanted them to feel um, what we know, which is that, you know, uh, queer and trans people really push the envelope forward on justice and are like the superheroes black queer and trans people are the superheroes of liberatory movements and so that is how we wanted to walk into into the pride parade how we wanted to stop walking in the pride parade how we wanted to sit in the pride parade you know we had these smoke bombs that were just colorful we wanted to create like this moment and these images that would inspire people um for for years to come and to you know we we knew we were going to say you know we're not going to move until you agree pride to to make these changes and that's what happened um and And how long did it take sorry how long were you sitting how how long were you guys sitting there do you know i i can't remember it's funny because now that I look back, I, I feel like it was it was like too long because I, I it was, anything is too long, right? Like they should have agreed to these things before we even, you know, before the parade even started. But um, 
I do I do recall us having conversations like, well, is there going to be a point where we have to leave because <laughs> we don't know how long this is going to take? Um, so I do think it was like a significant, maybe like 15, 20 minutes. I'm not sure though. I don't know. I don't, I can't, it could have been an hour. I don't know. And when you're doing something like that, time really rushes by. <laughs> so I think it was less than an hour because I remember thinking, wow, that was quick. Like, because I expected yeah. that it would be two hours or something like that because but I think the whole part of this that we're missing is that the PM was there. That was the yeah. year that the prime minister was at Pride and nobody wanted to be embarrassed. And how dare you? How dare you inconvenience the prime minister? How dare you? <laughs> yeah, that was, I mean, look. <laughs> I know it was like all the papers were ready all the papers were ready the next day they had like they wanted to have Justin Trudeau on the cover but we thwarted it <laughs> we thwarted it it was okay so we knew that he was going to be there and there were snipers uh you know like on the on the rooftops as you were walking down and I mean the reason yeah you know, you know that you have the prime minister there. Like there, there's the security was really heightened, and we were we were extremely scared actually of letting off those uh, those colorful smoke bombs for that reason. Yeah, <laughs> but um, you know, we were just like we can't get no black and yellow. The the smoke bombs have to be like pink. Okay, they can't. Um, so we were scared for that reason. But it's funny, you know, we stopped the parade, and then someone comes up to me. Um, these two people come up to me and they're like, hey, um, so we know that you want to speak to to Justin Trudeau. We know you want to speak to the prime minister. You know, he is willing to have a, a conversation with you if if that's, you know, uh, what you folks need to do. Um, like we can go back and, and have a negotiation or whatever. And we, I was like, oh, no, baby, this ain't about him. I was mm -hmm. just, oh, my gosh, <laughs> that's exactly I mean, what was going through my head. That's it's like cool, this isn't but about we're not him. trying to we're really not trying to speak to uh Prime Minister Trudeau today, but you can you can, <laughs> you can tell him thanks, I guess. <laughs> so, <laughs> that that's another funny piece of the story that doesn't often get told. <laughs> yeah. Um I was actually And they were those two reps were yeah. really like they were like, sorry, you don't want to speak to him? Like you don't want to speak to him right now then? Yeah, and no, it's we like, don't. We are no. busy. We're in the yeah. middle of something. <laughs> <laughs> He's just gonna have to wait like everybody else. <laughs> I remember. Did you ever actually talk to him, or no? No. What for? Yeah. <laughs> what well, for? yeah. But anyway, I I just know like through that, and you talked about the visual, and I till this day remember that visual, right? And that's mm -hmm. the, that's the point. And not only do I, I, and then I attribute the visual to that global conversation you started about police in pride in their uniforms. And all of a sudden um, you had like infighting in New York's pride <laughs> because that was the issue that they were trying to, to figure out same thing in ottawa 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 don't look ottawa ottawa 
Anyway, all this to say and that- And look, you know, it wasn't actually all of a sudden. It was like hella organized. Like, no, people, I'm just saying that the, the people outcome, in New York- Yeah. No, but what I'm saying is like the people in New York, they hit us up. We know those folks. Okay. You know, okay. they're like, hey, yeah. you, yo, can we get on a call? We need to figure out how this is done. We want to replicate. The folks in LA, they called, we hopped on a call. The folks in Vancouver, we hopped on a call. San Francisco. (laughs) Yeah. This actually is a major moment in Black, queer, and trans history. It's a major moment in Black history because this this action was replicated around the world. Yeah. And still to this day, you know, there are conversations around the world at Pride every time that Pride comes up. And it all started in Toronto. Yeah. It started with this action that we did. And um, you know, I just, it, it, you know, it, to Brazil, to, you know, like there, it just everywhere people were having these um, debates about what is, uh, what are, are the police doing at Pride? What is the, the role of Pride and should police be at Pride um, following 2016? And the thing is like, first of all, I mean, obviously, obviously these conversations are still going. Um, and there's something else that you guys started in 2016. I believe it's 2016. I know you'll correct me. Uh, <laughs> is the defund the police action and and that conversation. And it's so interesting to see where we are now. We're not like where we are now, where, you know, you talk defunding the police and it's not this big, like, anarchy anarchist type speech let's say it's oh yeah okay how would that or how do we do that da, 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 rather than just <gasps> pearl clutching there's still some pearl clutching don't get me wrong there will always be pearl clutching for you know there are people who i'm sure are pissed off women have the vote i'm just saying that um that's something else that i I believe I heard at, you know, at Pride or at least um, around that time and a conversation that you guys just pushed and without any sort of consideration for the propriety of it all. And I think that that has its own sort of powerful aspect to it that you don't ask for permission. Yeah, I mean, we started, I, we, we've been saying defund the police actually since the very beginning, since 2014. 2014, just, yeah. Now is only when people are like reporting on it. Like, so uh-huh. that, that has something to do with the cultural shift that's happened. And like, if you don't believe me, like I, you know, there's an article that I, the, one of the earliest articles that I wrote about it is I think in 2017 maybe 2016 I can't remember there's an article that I wrote in now magazine talking Mm -hmm. about how this is what needs to happen yeah and it didn't get that much fanfare people weren't paying that much attention to the idea of defunding the police until this year when it became like the rallying cry uh, for the the uprisings that were happening around the world Um, but yes we we're not asking permission to nobody like look this is the only way forward. This is the only way forward. And someone has to, to be pushing, mobilizing uh, us in, in, in what makes literal just 
clear, rational sense. You know, the only thing that makes sense out of this whole situation, out of everything that's going on, the anti-Blackness of the police, the violence of the police, the way that they treat people with disabilities, the way that they handle folks who have mental health issues, the way that they ignore Indigenous women uh, and two-spirit people, the way that they ignore uh, women generally and women's issues, uh, uh, gender-based violence altogether. Like, there's just like a thought, the way that they, they harass uh unhoused people look there's just like a thousand different things that are wrong with this with this service and it's just like the only logical thing to do is to defund them and so yeah we've been saying as much for a long time and you know we're not the only ones right we're not the only ones you know there's a there's a you know a long uh, tradition of especially uh, black women activists who've been saying these things. Um, and so I'm glad that a lot of people are starting to see the light. Finally. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> it has been as some it, time. As, as it goes though, right? You start out like saying things out loud that are sort of fringe, that are on the fringe of whatever polite society or society as a whole or or the the you know the middling of society wants to hear and then it's like I said at the top there the times come to you like you didn't do this for what was acceptable at the time you stated a position and then eventually the time came to you because you no, we pulled your- the time. We, pu- <laughs> we pulled the time into the present. We pulled it kicking and screaming. <laughs> Fair. We dragged that time <laughs> into <laughs> this <laughs> cultural moment. Okay. It didn't just arrive. <laughs> we to be fair we though. To put, I mean, we had to yeah. put our back into it. Okay. <laughs> Did you do backbends for this time? I feel like you did. <laughs> I, Erica's been asking me on Instagram for some some tips on on the on my backbends. Yes, <laughs> yes. Seeing my backbends. Uh, been doing backbends for a while, girl. <laughs> yeah, and the side crow. <laughs> and the side crow. What you're like? It's I all mean, about I call balance. it a Katie James. It's a. Uh, Capoeira move called Kitta Jahins, but for there all you, you yoga heads, it's the side crow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Hip hop heads, it's the baby freeze. <laughs> <laughs> it's got names. All right. So names. how did you pull the times to you then? Like, is it is it the consistency of the message? Is it the is the is it the actions that 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 cement those that consistency of the message like pulling the time to you how how did how did was that was that something that just happened because you were just plugging away plugging away plugging away at it like that's the kind of thing I think is interesting Yeah, I mean, I I do think that consistency is a big piece of it. Consistency is a is a big piece of it. Like, yeah, um, um, sticking to an idea, but also um, just honestly, and I said this so many times, and I hope it doesn't come off hokey. Like, the belief that it will happen is really important because if you do, if you believe that in the end you'll win, then you'll do anything 
um, that takes you from the point you're at now to the winning point. If you mm-hmm. don't believe that anyone's ever going to believe you when you say defund the police, then you're not going to do everything possible to make right. it to make okay, it, got um, it a viable issue. You're just going to go through the motions because you feel like you need to be going through some motions. But if you truly believe that we can do this, we are going to, you know, tomorrow uh, t- this, you know, I, I don't know when this will be out, but we're recording this the day before the city of Toronto is going to have uh, a vote on the budget. And it may not happen tomorrow. It may not happen tomorrow, but it will happen eventually. It will happen eventually. I truly believe this, which is why, you know, and I believed it back in 2014. I believed it in 2016. I believed it in 2017. I believe it today. And so I will continue to, to do anything possible to get to the result um, that we need to that we need to get to. So there's that. And then there's trial and error. You know, you try, you're like, if I, if I, you know, go up to you and I'm like, Hey girl, like, I think that we need to um, uh, dismantle the police and reallocate funding this way. And I see the light disappear from your eyes because you don't understand what I'm saying and it is not compelling to you, I'm, I'm going to throw that one out and I'm going to try something new next time. I'm going to come up to you and be like, I think we need to defund the police. And if I hear you go, oh, I'm going to be like, well, at least I got her attention. Let me see. Um, <laughs> let me see what's next. You know, let me stick with this one for a bit. You know, it's trial and error with how we use rhetoric, with how we use visuals, with how we use text, um, and with how we make people feel all of those things. And, um, you know, uh, when we started to, when we decided last summer, we're just going to push defund the police everywhere that we can, um, you know, we decided we're just going to be consistent with it. There are so many people out in the street supporting us right now and organizing under this banner that we think we can make this popular. And we did. So I belong to one of those spinoffs. <laughs> So I belong to this um, coalition against more surveillance uh, activism group. And, you know, defund the police is part of our sort of like one of the tenets, right? And so, yeah, you did that. Um, (laughs) No, you did. Like, I just want to, you know, give you your flowers because it's, it's true. Like, to be honest, um, I came to activism late in life, just late, later, you know, and it's from my sort of, of course, like my own experience was that this is some fucked up shit I'm seeing here in this here government. And therefore, like, this can't be the way forward. Like, this is, this has always been my, this can't be sustainable. If so many people are hurting, it just can't be sustainable to me. Right. And so it's, so then I started to actively look for, okay, so, and there's trial and error and you work with different groups and you do different things, or at least I did. And then um, it kind of just like, it's just so natural to be like, for now to be like, what, let's think about this now, what the fuck? Like, so for you to come up to me and be like, defund the police, I'd be like, huh, tell me more. What Mm -hmm. does that look like, right? But that's me. I'm more like, so what's the detail of this nitty gritty? Are we giving like, 
are we taking money from them and then like giving a base funding to organizations? Cause here I am. That's my shit. I'm for that. Right. Mm -hmm. Maybe for somebody else, it's a different reason. Right. Mm -hmm. And I remember having this argument over Twitter as one does. Um, (laughs) And, and this, this guy who obviously centers was like, well, try and say defund the police to like, somebody in bc and i'm like why wouldn't you like why wouldn't you push the message well good luck getting elected and i'm just like i'm not a politician i don't give a fuck about getting elected okay mm-hmm. I but mean, we have like people have been elected who said defund the police like let's that's not, the other thing well <laughs> let's that's not the pretend other- that we are like we, people are like chopping off their foot before they even try to walk like i don't understand okay <laughs> this is this is exactly like the mindset is what I'm getting to, right? So the mindset of, of always just because they don't truly believe it's possible, right? So what do you do if you don't believe it's possible? You don't fight for it. You don't fight for right. it. If you think it is impossible. You will not fight for it. This is what I mean. Like you, you have to actually believe it. And it's like, it is so possible. It's possible. It's just the amazing. <laughs> Like, look, just like the amazing things that we've, the amazing policy shifts that we've seen in a place like the United States, which is supposed to be way more conservative than Canada. But as we've discovered this year, especially on this issue, it's not. We've got the city of Austin who uh, they've decided to defund the police by to the tunes of hundreds of millions of dollars. And what they did with that money is they purchased hotels in the city to house unhoused people rather than targeting them for harassment by the police. Shock, awe, magic. (laughs) Calgary. Calgary defunded their police department. I mean, Hamilton went to school. They got rid of police out of their schools. Yeah. LA yeah. just got rid of police out of their schools. Yeah. Seattle has decided to, this is, this one makes me laugh. They're like, you know what? Maybe we don't need a mounted police unit. You don't. Who needs a mounted police unit? In a school? Well, no, that I don't, that wasn't in a school. Oh, okay. I was just like, in a school that just I mean what how much money is Toronto spending you know maintaining a mounted police unit for what just to drop doo-doo all over the ground all every once in a while like as we're living for those of us who live in the city like that's what is the purpose and to break um people's legs when they're when they're organizing because that's the only thing I've ever seen them used for is corralling people who Mm. are protesting or who are like coming out from the club like yeah (laughs) That's what they're used for. Yeah, Get yeah. rid of them. Get yeah. rid of them. There's no reason for it. And what about like the militarization that of the police that that money goes towards? I mean, not only does it go like, first off, I find it interesting. It just interesting, yet not. Um, how there has been a systemic and systematic um like attacks on unions except the police union the police union because unions are bad but the police union is okay 
Except uh, that's because they're not a union. They're not. Well, a union. the union. That's, the union never you. wanted them anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're because they're there. Well, some unions do have them. Let's be clear. Oh, okay. But they shouldn't because they're not unions. It's not what they are. The unions represent the interests of the working class against those who hold power, hold capital. The union, the fraternal organization that that the police, um, you know, organize through, don't do that. I, they represent I, the interests of the state. They represent the interests of power who would like to control their citizens. That's what they do. So fundamentally, I'm, they are not a union. I'm picking up what you're putting down, Sandy. I just say I just like I'm just here for the accuracy okay accurate (laughs) words okay the fraternal order is um no seriously when you put it in those sets I feel like like it's like skull and duggery skull and bones or something at some frat house because that's what it sounds like because that's it kind of is a frat house so when you take a look I mean how many class action lawsuits against the police do you have on issues of sexual violence um, and gender-based violence and so on before you start to believe that uh, oh and you know all of the the weird uh, things that come up in the in the news about the police being involved in drug trafficking um, and sex trafficking like until you believe that yeah, actually, this might be a really scary frat. <laughs> well, know? you know, here in Alberta, they're talking um, in Lethbridge, they're actually like targeting uh, an MLA or MPP, as Ontario calls it, like just targeting her. Of course, she's of color. Um and surveilling her and um you know like violating her privacy and all sorts of things that's the whole thing that's a court thing that's going on here and that's only one person I mean what what scares me is like predictive analytics and um and police and databases and of of treasure troves of private information like look what they did with tow trucks already like you know what I mean I just I and that's another frontier for them I mean granted there was a win recently with Clearview and and the privacy commissioner and and calling it illegal and that's fine but you know there's going to be other analytics other other as a computer science former computer science major I don't have to explain this to you and that's I feel that's the scary part so defunding is not just about like it's a like obviously a you know reducing funding hopefully I'm hoping reduces some of that power and that power to surveil people period I mean I mean Yeah, like the police don't do anything well, except for watch, target and harass black and black and indigenous people and people who are living in poverty. Like that's that's all they do well. So, of course, they want more surveillance tools. But it's like, is that the purpose of the police? Is is that the purpose of this service that we are all paying um, 
taxes to expecting to have some um, some measure of better safety and security? No, it's not. And in fact, we don't have any measure more of safety and security through that. It endangers us. Um, and so, yeah, hell yeah, they shouldn't have any of that um, surveillance technology or, um, or uh, the additional technology that we keep hearing about that they're employing that continues to harm us because it's like the central purpose of their being, you know, they haven't, they haven't moved away from it um, since uh, that became their purpose when they were implemented on uh, it, you know, from in Europe to here, like they were here to protect private property primarily. That's their, that's their charge. And that included people. Indeed. So, you do a lot of now in your podcast, Sandy and Nora with Dora Loretto. Um, uh, you do a lot of you talk a lot about labor and about economic um, disparities and economic justice. And so I at least at least the last time I listened to it, that's what I remember. It's a lot of economic justice. It's it's actually one of the podcasts that I listen to that has a big component of that. And, you know, what I see is that's another big part of, say, um, of movement building that um, I think can bring in a, a lot of people, but all, also it's, it's more acute now that we're going through a pandemic, right? I mean, if we're not talking, I feel like if we're not talking about economic justice, what are we here for kind of thing? And it, it intersects with so many things, race and ability and gender, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so tell me how, like, let's talk about how that podcast came about how you and because you and Nora have known each other for years is what I remember. And um, didn't you guys used to organize together in terms of labor and, you know, labor movements and unions and so on? Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, we go we go back way farther than that. Um, we we met uh, during student movement days. Um, Nora was a president of the Ryerson Students Union when I was like, I think the vice president equity at the University of Toronto Students Union. And uh, so, you know, we were very similarly working um, at our institutions for change with respect to tuition fees and equity and um, anti-racism work and all, you know, the, the wonderful thing about working at a student's union is you get an education in all of these things because all of these pieces touch students because students are, you know, just nothing more than a diverse group of people coming together who have all the same problems as everybody who is off campus. Um, so, you know, we, we really got an education in, in so many different issues that um, touched us directly and some that didn't touch us directly, but touched people around us directly. Um, and eventually both of us went on to work very closely together. And this is when we really started to know each other at the Canadian Federation of Students Ontario office. Mm. I was the Ontario chairperson 
in an elected position representing students across the province. And Nora was the uh, communications and government relations officer. And so we worked really closely together because every time uh, you know, as an elected person, I had to have a meeting with a politician. Nora was doing the um, the prep for that. You know, she was a government relations officer, so we would prep those things together. Every time that I had to do a media um, uh, interview, Nora would, you know, she was a communications officer as well, so she would help and prep me for that. So that, you know, we came to work very, very closely together and we work very, very well together. Uh, we have a very similar style and <laughs> it just really worked out. Like I, I recall, um, you know, one of the first times that we uh, came together to work on a press release and uh, in the office, it was assigned to me to write and Nora to edit. So I wrote this press release. Um, I sent it to Nora and she came back to my office and she put it on my desk and there was just red scribbles all over it and there was uh, like at one there was like one of her notes in the margins was what the fuck does this even mean and I was like oh my god <laughs> amazing I love working with people like that I love working with people who are just so frank and aren't going to be like this is this is really great. I have some suggestions though. No, Nora was like, we're not going to go out here looking a fool. Like I'm going to tell you when I think you're on some bullshit. And I would be able to say back to her, like, what do you mean? What the fuck does this mean? Why don't you fucking understand it? Like, you know, and we had <laughs> yeah. this relationship where we just very right off the bat, we work so well together and we're able to be so frank in our disagreements and in when when we agreed with one another. And uh, I think we sharpened each other. We made each other better um, in working together. Well, you guys actually, um, like you can hear it in the podcast, to be honest. You can hear where each other come from and you could see where you two kind of, you know, come together. And um, one of one of the podcasts I remember, I don't know, don't ask me why I remember this episode, okay? But I remember talking of you and Nora talking about financial literacy and how the government of Ontario was going to introduce this fight. I think it was Kathleen Wynne at the time, if I'm not mistaken. Was that Kathleen? Yes. And I was just like, and you guys made me think twice about financial literacy. Like, literally. It, 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 went, it went against my whole, like, professional whatever, right? And I, I remember you were like, why do we even need this if we actually had, um, you know, uh, labor policies that allow people to have a decent wage and live properly and keep their money? And you're like, I don't, I'm not saying that these were your exact words, but basically you were like, this is a bullshit. <laughs> this is a smoke screen. Yeah, I probably There's, said that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and it impressed upon me, A, um, how much I personally was just missing part of this labor part, this labor activism part, and how important that was to racial equity. 
and gender equity and everything else that we wanted to do. While not the same, instrumental, like a necessary condition. So yeah, that's something I learned from you too. It just through that podcast. Glad to have shared that with you. Yeah, the the financial literacy piece is, you know, that was one of those issues, again, that came up as students. Um, The government was really intent on wanting to, to, you know, put in as mandatory in the curriculum, these financial literacy classes, which just, it's just, it's just one of the, another one of the ways that um, this whole system is hell bent on blaming the poor for being poor as though, you know, um, a very wealthy person is just financially literate. No, <laughs> the most financially literate, pe- literate people are people like my mother who like really knew how to stretch a dollar, okay? Really knew how to stretch a dollar. And it's not the fault of poor people for not knowing how investment banking works or how to, how to run, do the stock market or pay taxes or get the right tax credits. It's like, you can't get tax credits if you don't, if you're not making enough money, you know what I mean? You, you can't invest anything if you don't have anything left over to invest. If you're riddled with student debt, that's, there's nothing that's going to make that there's no amount of financial literacy. That's just going to just raise you up out of that. You know, the system is built so that there are people on the bottom who are exploited and uh, who are disadvantaged economically. It is created that way. And to say, you know, we're going to help everybody by making them financially literate is just one of these ways that we just are blaming people for their lot. But it's the system. It's not, it's not the people themselves. Well, we always use the individual as um, a backstop for systemic issues. It's like, oh, no, don't look. No, you don't want people to recognize that the system's fucked. So you'll blame the individual and say, well, maybe you're like and, and the idea that poor people just aren't smart enough to add money is 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 wild to me now. It's just wild. And. You know, it's that whole narrative, you're poor because you're not smart enough. You're poor because you're not, you're not trying hard enough. You're not working hard enough because the whole idea of a meritocracy is to make people believe that, that their hard work is going to get them somewhere. And more and more and more, we know that ain't true. Okay. People work hard every day, every day, the working poor people are the hardest workers and to think that they're poor because they're work not working hard enough is really a slap in the face and from this pandemic what we heard from various i you know conservatives and liberals basically say the same thing sometimes so i'm just like i don't even know whatever but it was well we don't want to give people relief because then they won't work and you're just like but there, I, you, what? You know what I mean? And I just, after a while, it just got, it just, it just, in, it's just enraging. It's enraging. Anyway, I'm feeling a little ragey. Um, so let me move on. <laughs> so Sandy and Nora Talk Politics is basic, is the whole um, title of Sandy's podcast. All to say, too, that you have a book out that's right yeah that's right and 
your book um is now is this an is this like a combination of like of reflections of writing because it says until the name of the book is called until we are free reflections on black lives matter in Canada. And so is this, so first of all, is this a collection of writing? And second of all, is this the first volume of more? Oh gosh, you're trying to give me more work to do. Wow. Come on this podcast and you're trying to give me more work to do. I'm just, I <laughs> listen, I already ordered the first one. So I want to know oh, if number two is coming. You're saying yeah. first as though, first. okay, okay. <laughs> Got it. Um, you look, we, we don't have any concrete plans to make like a second volume, but I won't say that it hasn't come up as an idea. I won't say that it hasn't come up as an idea, I'm but I will you say, anything new. I will say I'm not chasing it because it is <laughs> very difficult to, to put together a book uh, with so many different authors. It's hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I didn't realize how hard it was going to be. It, it was delayed a whole year. Like it was <laughs> a whole year um, a delay on its release. Uh, it is not easy. So how did it come about? Um, the University of Regina Press reached out and were interested in us um, writing something uh, from Black Lives Matter. And we mm. talked about it and we thought like, okay, we could write our story. We could write um, like a reflection on the last five years. We could like, there's all these options. And then we thought like, look, the most powerful thing that you can do when you get power in some way is to disseminate it you know is to just give it away to other people and we thought how you know it's so rare that um black people have a chance to to like come together and add to the canon that is you know the americas or the west or something like that you know what i mean we don't always have these sorts of opportunities and certainly not in Canada, where Canada just seems to want to erase us all the time. And we just thought, how, you know, true, how could we be more true to our politics than if we were to, you know, just allow Black Canada to write itself, just put it out there and say, emerging writers, people who aren't even writers, artists, people who've been writing for a long time, um, people who are incarcerated, teachers, mothers. Um, how can we get kids involved in this? Like, how can we bring all of this, these different experiences of Blackness uh, north of the 49th parallel together mm -hmm. and uh, put it out there uh, to have impact for people? Um, and that that is how... Uh, until we were free was born as a as a contributed volume from all of these wonderful wonderful contributors um, across Canada. And you said something just now. Um, the most powerful thing you could do when you get power is to disseminate power. Like, why? I know why, but why? I mean, look, you know, for those of us who are on the bottom of the power structure. The, the only hope we have uh, to to be able to um, to change the conditions of the world is to 
build power alongside each other. Our, our greatest resource is our collectivity is coming together to say, um, there are more of us than there are of you, wealthy people, people in power, and we demand this, right? So um, if we can, if we get a little power and we disseminate it and make it grow, you know, build collective power, um, uh, that uh, gives us hope for a better future because um, it is with power that we will need to confront power. And Okay, so now I'm going to read from uh, a McLean's article that I hope is up to date. <laughs> and where you were, you were reading that Flair article has a date on it. It was published years ago. <laughs> was it 2019? Okay, was it 20? That is years ago, girl. Hello. That's that's true. It's like a. <laughs> It's like a year and a half ago. I'm just like, that's true. I've lived like four lifetimes since then. <laughs> okay. So you said in an article, it was, a, it was more of an interview. And you said, we will take care of ourselves always. You said, how did we help people with our COVID relief fund? where the government failed in getting money out to people who desperately needed it in Black communities. We had a lot of people donate to this fund and we were able to get money and food directly to families that needed it. I'm so confident that we will continue to take care of each other. And so in like, there is that belief again, that belief that yes, it will happen. The belief that my community will be there for me. And I got to say, over the past like few years, personally, that has been really eye opening and humbling. Um, The fact that you have a community that wishes you well, that wants to take care of each other, just like you want to take care of them, they want to take care of you. And this this reciprocity, and the whole idea of living in reciprocity is is powerful on its own as we were just talking about power so I mean I guess you know I was gonna ask well you know what role where where does community stop and government start and then I'm like well I don't know that's kind of like the wrong question if you know what I mean it's you know how how does community, um, I guess, uh, I'm not, I'm not a big proponent of everything must be public. Um, we've seen the harm the government could do. We just talked about the state and police. Um, child welfare is another example. And so I know when I think of sometimes of these things, of these of these groups. I think of Herringate Tenant Association, for example. I think about how they were a, a true community living in reciprocity and how the state came along and just broke it up and what kind of loss there is there. And so this idea, so politically, I'm trying to like circle the square, square the circle or whatever, in terms of this community building that we can do that we do without 
without government intervention that takes care of each other that that reaches out to each other um you know and then then there's government programs which don't really reach our communities i've yet to hear a package that is for um specifically for essential workers for example or specifically for the black community or specifically for food service workers or something like you know what i mean and you know we we're we're reared in a way in this country to think of government and i'm just having like this this kind of this thought process where i'm just like yeah but no not always do you see what i mean I know this is very convoluted the way I'm putting it, but I'm just thinking it through, right? And thinking through what you said. Yeah, and I mean, like, look, the... The, uh, the best kind of government would be if we were able to take care of one another through the government, mm-hmm. right? Um, the government fails at that sort of thing. <laughs> so, you know, we, we take it upon ourselves to take care of one another where we can. The problem is that we don't always, not all of us have the same ability to do that for one another and not everybody lives in a community where that's possible. And that's why, you know, we can't let the government off the hook on these things. They absolutely should be the ones to take care of us. It's what the fuck taxes are for. It's not for buying pipelines. It is for taking care of one another. It is for providing um, the, the necessities for a good life. That is the reason why we come together through to, 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 um, uh, to you know have a government but in in the failings of government which is consistent you know we have to uh, I think it, it is inherent upon us um, those of us in, in communities who have the ability um, to to create better and to create what's possible for one another and it's like it's one of those things again where you just have to believe that you can do better to just do better and um, we can do it with different politics than the government does, you know? It's like, I think about um, the person who is making, I can't remember his name right now, the person who is making the tiny the tiny homes for unhoused people in, in Toronto. In he's Toronto? Like, yeah. He's just like, okay, so the government ain't going to do this shit, then I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. <laughs> I'm just going to make it happen. And the government's like, okay, but these things aren't up to code. Okay, then go figure it out yeah go go fucking figure it out yeah like you could have been doing this shit but you haven't you've let this be a problem and let this be a crisis until here we have a pandemic where someone in the community is like i'm not going to take this anymore i'm 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 gonna change this same thing with with like you know this program that you were just talking about that we did it was like okay you know it's people are struggling to apply for serb some people aren't getting it people are struggling with getting food and so on and it takes too long and you have to have access to the internet and all of this and, 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 and how difficult it is. We're like, can we just get some cash out to people? Yeah, we can. We can do that. We can partner with Food Share and we can try to get as much free food and cash to people as possible. And then, you know, like we had people be like, well, if you do that, what happens if someone gets this who doesn't need it? Then someone gets it who doesn't need it. 
I don't, I don't under, here's the thing. Everybody needs food. (laughs) Everybody (laughs) needs cash. And like during a pandemic, can we, it's like, here's the thing. Like we're just so oriented in society. It's just this, this weird way of thinking where we're just like, well, we can't, we have to make sure that the rich don't get richer. I'm like, okay, well, there's a whole system change that we need to do if that's what we're going to do. But I am not going to punish those who are poorer, stop myself from, from um, doing the mutual aid necessary to, to ensure that people have the necessities to live in my community, just because one asshole might benefit who doesn't need it. And generally, those people aren't assholes. Generally, we just don't understand what their, what their uh, situation is. And, you know, it's, a, it's the same sort of things that we'd hear when we would say, you know, tuition should be free. Well, what happens to the people who can pay for it? They get free tuition too. But guess what? All the people who are really struggling to pay for it, those thousands of people, they need free tuition. That rich pe- person is going to be rich whether you charge him $5,000 in tuition fees, $10,000 or $20,000 because they are millionaires. So stop, stop fucking with them. Like who cares? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's focus on the people who need to be focused on. Um, if you want to make sure that those people are paying their fair share, Hey, there's this whole thing we call taxes. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm laughing. At, I'm just laughing at the like, the obviousness of it you know what I mean the obviousness (laughs) that's what I'm just like I'm just like uh yeah like we do this all the time you're right you're we're we're like well isn't that the whole thing with CERB well we should get rid of CERB because too many people are benefiting off I'm like but what about the people who who would have been kicked out of their homes without it I, I I I just I just I'm just like, why, why do you care so much about, and I think it's because we, we're, we're reared to think about this zero sum mentality, like this, Mm -hmm. oh, well, if somebody else gets something, I get less. And I think that that like, partially underpins exactly that way of thinking but it's true, yeah but focus like- on the pipeline <laughs> don't focus <laughs> don't focus on those of us who are getting scraps out here you know like yeah. if you, yeah, yeah, you want to yeah. be mad at someone getting some and you not getting none be mad at that fucking the pipeline <laughs> be but mad I feel at the pipeline like- be mad at the police be mad at the people who are really getting all this money in society these major corporations we're getting all these tax breaks be mad at that this conversation has been eye-opening as I thought it would be. I was hoping you would come drop some knowledge, to be honest. That's what I do. I, I'm, I'm like a, you know, like it, everybody around me is a reluctant student. I apologize. <laughs> Just you do not. So don't try. Like, but why? I know. I know. I don't really apologize. No, you don't. Like, don't. Don't bother. <laughs> don't bother. But I think one of the most important things I've learned over the past, I don't know, few years is you always challenge the, the, um, you always challenge assumptions and conventional wisdom. Like question conventional wisdom, because it's not that wise. It's just people who have the power to instill certain um, ways of doing things that aren't questioned by people who have less power for that reason you know like literally 
that's what our traditions are. Those are facts. Those yeah. are facts. And you know, there's nothing there's nothing in this world that's permanent and we should constantly be reevaluating everything you know the way our society is set up the values that we hold we should always none of those things are permanent we should always take a look and say is that really how we want to be is this really how we want to be constituted and uh, I think that that's a very powerful and ethical way to go about living life and so that's how I'm gonna do it that's how I'm doing it so thanks for coming yeah thanks for having me i'm waiting on this book until we are free (laughs) listen to sandy and nora talk politics because again labor um economic justice racial justice ability um you guys talk a lot about of course gender gender diversity gender gender um justice i guess you could call it um etc 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 uh yeah again thanks for coming we will see you on the flip side bye sandy bye and hey let me let me just plug one more thing oh oh you're not napping in the podcast i am gonna be (laughs) napping but but i do want to say um um just want to let your listeners know that black lives matter canada is running a canada-wide mutual aid campaign right now so if they are interested um, wait 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 wait, listeners out there wait in contributing tell us no 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 you can't just drop that at the end and not tell you nobody mean? you can't just drop that out of the end and not expand so i'm going to give no, but, you but some it's, minutes. it's related to exactly what you said before okay it's the same okay thing go that ahead we did before in toronto but scaled up to canada so it is it's a mutual aid um uh, situation to help uh, black people who are uh, impacted by the pandemic right now economically and so on and so we are fundraising for it we've made uh, about three hundred thousand dollars. We're trying to get to five hundred thousand dollars to give out uh, micro loans to people across the country. So please go to BlackLivesMatter.ca and uh, and donate um, to that if you can. Thank you. A lot of y'all ask me, how can I help? That's a way to help everybody. That's a way to help. Um, so again, bye, Sandy. <laughs> <laughs> Babu, thanks for having me on. Yay! Oh, my bitch is bad and bullshit. <laughs>